Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we have the distinct pleasure of chatting with Patty Cushing, Director of Compliance at the National Futures Association, for an insider's look at the examination process of the NFA, new areas of focus for the SRO, ideas around remote supervision, and much more. In our headline section, we do a deep dive into the recent buzz and regulatory activity surrounding crypto assets. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of the What's On My Mind segment, where we look at the impact of gamification on the investment management industry and the potential for new regulation. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, it's all about the crypto. Over the last month or so, there has been a ridiculous amount of activity in this space. On May the 7th, SEC Commissioner Gensler said, right now, the exchanges trading in these crypto assets do not have a regulatory framework, either at the SEC or our sister agency, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Right now, there's not a market regulator around these crypto exchanges, and thus, there's really not protection against fraud or manipulation. One day later, Elon Musk made an appearance on Saturday Night Live and seemingly disparaged the cryptocurrency Dogecoin, and it tumbled more than 30%. Musk then followed uh, that performance with another market-moving event, tweeting that his electric vehicle company Tesla would no longer accept Bitcoin as payment, citing its high energy demands. On May the 14th, the new cryptocurrency dubbed Internet Computer which aims to foster open, decentralized versions of social media and enterprise software, debuted to the tune of $90 billion, with its market cap settling near $40 billion. On May the 20th, SIFMA issued a comment letter on digital assets cautioning the SEC on limiting custody of digital asset securities. SIFMA argued that the SEC should take a more technology-neutral approach to rulemakings and try to focus on broker-dealer flexibility as opposed to the underlying technology itself. According to a recent Washington Post article by Hamza Shaban, shout out to listener David Summers for the nod there, cryptocurrencies now number nearly 10,000. And over the past three months, the total value of all cryptocurrencies has spiked 40% to about $2 trillion. In an article in Forbes, Robert Hart said that the novel challenges of cryptocurrencies alongside highly volatile markets create high risks of financial crime and rapid growth into the mainstream, thus making it a prime target for financial regulators around the world. And yet, there appears to be some significant division, even inside the SEC, as to whether the focus in crypto assets should be on building a regulatory framework for investor protections versus encouraging and not stifling innovation, and the march forward of new opportunities for financial growth. Just by way of example, back in May, China recently cracked down on financial institutions trading in digital assets, and this led towards a market contraction of nearly 30% in that space. And look, I get it. This is an incredibly nuanced issue. And as a de facto leader in global financial services, the the U.S. can't just change on a dime. And the decisions that the SEC makes to influence the market are inherently seismic. 
when you're a smaller jurisdiction whose financial infrastructure doesn't necessarily support a global economy in the same way as the U.S. would, it's a much different proposition and you can move much, much faster. That being said, on June 9th, El Salvador became the first country in the world to formally adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And in 90 days, the digital asset will have to be accepted by businesses in El Salvador for goods and services right alongside the U.S. dollar. Even here stateside, David Kanitsky, who is the chief executive of Kraken Bank, told MarketWatch earlier this year that his company chose to domicile in Wyoming because it's the only state offering a banking charter that outlines exactly how bank regulators will supervise a bank that holds digital assets. Is there a risk in cryptocurrencies? Of course there is. I know I wouldn't want the price of my assets going down 3% just because Elon Musk tweeted another broken heart emoji with, with some Linkin Park lyrics. But there's also clearly innovation and opportunity happening here too. And hopefully, many of the compliance officers and legal practitioners listening to this very podcast can ultimately be part of the solution to bring crypto assets into the main while still maintaining investor safeguards. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly happy to welcome in Patty Cushing, Director of Compliance at the National Futures Association. Patty has worked at the NFA since 1990. Her responsibilities include overseeing staff who conduct financial and compliance examinations, investigations, and financial surveillance of brokerage firms in the commodity futures industry. She manages the design of the department's exam programs and is responsible for the training of the examination staff. She also leads the compliant department's member education efforts, advises members on compliance issues, and presents at industry conferences. She has served as a primary liaison between the NFA and the CFTC in the development of rules affecting commodity trading advisors and commodity pool operators. She is also a, also a graduate of St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, which warms my own heart as a Notre Dame alum, and as a certified public accountant, certified fraud examiner, certified regulatory compliance professional, and having received that designation through the FINRA Institute at the Wharton School of Business. Patty brings obviously a wealth of experience and a depth of knowledge that we are really excited to tap into today. Patty, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Really appreciate the invitation. So to kick things off, I thought it might be helpful for a lot of our listeners to just get a little bit of background on the NFA and specifically, you know, your role in the industry, kind of uh, maybe some, you know, statistics around the organization itself and in, in the scope and your mission and, and kind of the purpose that, that you help serve for the investment management industry. Yeah, that's great. You know, NFA is the self-regulatory organization in the U.S. derivatives markets. And so our mission is officially to safeguard the integrity of the derivatives markets by uh, and protect investors and ensure that our members are meeting their regulatory responsibilities. So we do that um, through our core functions, which is first registration and membership. So all firms and um, professionals who are trading in futures, options on futures, retail forex, forex products and swaps have to uh, register with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CFTC, and then become NFA members. 
So NFA is, uh, has been delegated from the CFTC, the registration process. So, so we handle that. And there's about um, 3,200 NFA members right now that fall into the categories of, you know, your FCMs, Futures Commission Merchants, RFEDs, which is the retail forex, uh, exchange dealers, your commodity pool operators, your commodity trading advisors, introducing brokers, swap dealers, and major swap participants. So uh, that's kind of how we break down. And so then our other function is once we get them all registered is we are responsible for monitoring them for compliance with all the rules and regulations. And so we do that through a few things, just financial analysis, on-site ex- examinations of our firms, um, pre-COVID on-site, um, right. and then, <laughs> um, and then of course, fin- uh, investigations. So you know, special investigations, special issues, or customers who complain, um, things like that. Um, So we're monitoring for compliance with the rules and regs, and we do that, you know, NFA has a staff of over 500 people, but the examination staff who work on the futures firms um, is over 125 or so um, right now. Obviously, if we find members who are not following the rules, uh, one of our core functions is to take disciplinary action against them which could result in a fine or suspension or expulsion from membership. The other core functions NFA has is to provide a dispute resolution program through our arbitration and mediation programs, and then educating our members and investing public. So that's why I really appreciate the invitation today to educate people about NFA. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. And really, really helpful background. I mean, again, I, I think many of our listeners are probably pretty attuned to to the NFA, but I'm sure we'll have some that may be less familiar. And, and I always just think it's important because it helps set the table for, I think, some of the other aspects of, of, of our conversation today and kind of how the NFA is, yeah, how they are approaching certain issues. And so I uh, really appreciate that background. You mentioned in there uh, the examination process, and, and I think that's another another really good topic for us to kind of dig into a little bit. If you would, maybe could you tell us a little bit about the examination process proper, and then specifically talk a little bit maybe about some of the different steps involved and how typically you have kind of started that process uh, for, for a registrar? Sure. So, you know, we're very similar to other regulators in how we approach our examinations. Um, We start with a risk management group who helps us identify which of our 3,200 members we're going to go visit next. So they use some uh, quantitative analysis to do that, data analytics. Um, But then there's also a qualitative component to it where we um, have our our staff actually review different information and decide, okay, these are the next candidates for an exam. So it starts with us announcing the exam. In almost all cases, we do contact the firm, let them know when we plan to do an exam, uh, and we schedule an operations call which is a really important part of the process because that's where our our exam team will meet with, talk with your, um, whoever you want us to talk to really about your operations and try to get the most comprehensive understanding of what your business is. 
we certainly have a lot of information about your firm already, just from past exams or your annual questionnaire that you fill out, but or disclosure documents and all sorts of things like that. But we want to know from you what you know, what your policies and procedures are, what your business model is, things like that. The more information we get in that operations call, the better job our team can do its risk analysis and decide where we're going to focus on our exam. So that means not a lot of extra requests for documents that we might not need or looking into areas that we don't need to spend time on. So again, the more information you can share in that operations call, the the better, because that helps us identify, really sets the tone for the rest of the exam. Where are we going to go? What are we going to look at? Um, Things like that. What are we going to request in documents? We will put out an an initial document request list with the firm after that call. Um, They upload documents to a, a secure server and we go back and forth and, and focus on, again, what we've done is our risk analysis. That's kind of the field work stage. We do a lot of testing. We do a lot of interviews with people. Um, in the last couple of years, our CPOs are very familiar with um, our internal control review that we do, which includes walkthroughs with the people who are actually performing the control. So we're not just talking to the CCO anymore. We're talking to the people, you know, who are actually doing the work of your internal controls and, and reviewing systems, et cetera. So, um, and then after the field work phase, you know, there's a lot of follow-up questions, things like that. Um, maybe some follow-up document requests as we go through the review process. And eventually, we uh, have an exit interview with you. Describe any deficiencies we identified, and you'll get an exam report from us where hopefully um, you've already demonstrated corrective action for any deficiencies. But if not, um, and even if you have, we're going to ask you to respond to any of those deficiencies. So that's kind of the whole process, Patrick. Yeah, no, that's. That's really helpful. I've got one real quick question and then and then kind of a longer follow up. The, the real quick question is typically when after you provide that kind of, you know, uh, after you provide that, hopefully like a, a no further action letter or, or a no deficiency letter. But after you provide a letter that may have some deficiencies in it, how long typically would a firm have to respond to that uh, as, as part of as, as part of that process? You know, it's officially set at 10 days, 10 business days to respond. If you need more time, though, you just talk to your team um, and, and, you know, say what you need. And we likely are fine with it. Again, though, that exit interview will have already summarized all of that that for you. So hopefully you've been working on your response (laughs) since then. But I can see you might want to see the official wording in the report before you finalize things. So. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Well, I, I can speak uh, I can speak from personal experience just with the broader organization of, of the NFA. One of the things that I have so appreciated over the course of, of, of my involvement is the very kind of educational and very informational approach that you all have. I, I just I so um, at different times, um, whether it's you know, helping to counsel certain folks or, or even serving in, in a particular compliance role at, at a registrant. 
the information that you all have on your website and the other information that you all provide probably not you know totally dissimilar from what were uh, our conversation right now and the outreach that you have to the industry but i i have just found that to be uh, such a difference maker really to be able to provide that uh, high high touch uh, you know guidance to many of your registrants it has that consistently been a theme that during your tenure at the NFA that you all have continued to stress over time, has that been a purposeful thing or did that just kind of evolve, you know, organically? So Patrick, it really has been a focus my entire career and it started from the top. I mean, our presidents and CEOs say to us, you know, one of our functions is, is education and that includes member education. You know, if our, if our mission is to safeguard the integrity of the derivatives markets and protect customers, the best way to do that is to have member firms who are in compliance with the rules and regulations. Right. And so most members want to do the right thing. And so it's our job to make sure they understand what the rules and regulations require and that they do it. But it's also our job for those firms who don't want to follow the regulations that we identify them quickly and get them disciplined. Right. So. So, yes, our approach is, um, you know, is to be professionally skeptic during our exams, but to also make sure that, you know, when there is a deficiency that we're not, you know, crazy about it, we just explain what it is and what you need to do to to be better. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great, it's a great point. It actually sparks an idea in my head that I imagine the NFA finds really beneficial on the front end. uh, The NFA would get the benefit of providing really good information to a lot of its members so they're able to affect a proper compliance program right and be able to meet all of the regulatory requirements on the back end it also probably helps you separate <laughs> firms that are trying to do it right versus those that aren't trying you you can eat more easily differentiate when a firm hasn't even tried right or they're, they're not yes. they're, they're clearly falling outside the white lines uh because you you think to yourself well uh, the, the excuse of, I didn't, I, you know, I, how could I know how to do it? The information that isn't out there just wouldn't be, uh, you know, a, a credible response from a firm in that, in that instance. Right. And I actually have an example of that right now, Patrick, if you don't mind. At our rec- recent business conduct committee meetings, the BCC took disciplinary action against some firms for not having a cybersecurity program. And this wasn't, you know, missing one or two things or, you know, being late on training of their employees. This was completely not having an information system security program. This rule has been in place now for a few years, and we have done everything we can imagine to educate people about this, talk about this. I mean, the first exams, we were very educational about it. You know, there's there's resources available to help you write this ISSP. So people who are completely ignoring the rule, the BCC said enough and they took action. So it is something that we're we're starting to look at and do, which, you know, we had been such an educational approach on that. But yeah, don't ignore it. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. At some point, right, people need to put pen to paper and start to actually build the internal controls that they need and the compliance programs that they need. 
One other item, I guess maybe that now I really appreciate all that kind of thoughtfulness around the exam process. Would you have any particular tips that, that, you know, you'd like to offer for registrants out there who, you know, maybe they're new registrants and they're, uh, you know, prepping for their first exam. What might be some kind of healthier, helpful tips for, for someone that would be in that position? So the number one, without a doubt, best advice I can give a firm is to get the self-examination questionnaire that you're required to do every year and do a thorough review of your operations following that questionnaire. Some people say that you could take off NFA self-examination questionnaire and replace it with NFA's exam program. And, and it's, it really is a list of what we are going to be looking for. So if you are going through that questionnaire and you think, you know, you have questions on it or you don't think it applies, pick up the phone and, and call NFA. Um, our information center will connect you with a compliance person and we'd be happy to, to talk through what is required there and and what it is you know that you're doing and whether or not it's it's uh, applicable to to you but don't just ignore what <laughs> a section of the questionnaire because you're not sure what it is i can guarantee that if if it applies to you you should have something in place to to be in compliance with <laughs> so um so the self-examination questionnaire, really spending the time, it's, it's meant to help you identify the areas of your compliance program that aren't up to snuff. And it gives you the opportunity to, to implement things. You don't need NFA examiners to come in and point out that you're missing something when it's the third bullet in the questionnaire. You could have had it yourself. So. Right. So that is, without a doubt, the number one way you can prepare for for an exam and avoid many, many of the common deficiencies that we that we usually identify on our first exams. Um, The other tips, you know, are just are just generally um, making sure that you have a good system of record keeping and that you're able to access things. Um, you know, that's that's a big part of the exam process, right? Is we ask for a document request list and, and being able to pull that information. So, you know, we're happy to share our document request list with people. So, you know, we don't have it on our website or anything, but you can certainly call NFA and we'll send it out to you. That's fantastic. No, thank you. I I, uh, I definitely think and and would echo your sentiment that you know if you can get the exa- if you can get the a draft of the test before the exam, I mean, <laughs> like, that would seem like a really good place to start to me. Well, I know that you know there's a lot happening uh, in the industry right now, and certainly. Um, and certainly at the NFA, another thing that I'd love to kind of chat with you a little bit about today is just looking ahead, um, you know, through the rest of 2021 and kind of into the future, you know, are there any particular kind of new initiatives um, that, that the NFA either has been working on currently or, or plans to work on later in the year? What are some key areas that, that you all are focused on right now? So there's two new rules that are coming out uh, fairly shortly here. One is is effective on June 30th, which is a CPO notice filing requirement. And this is something that um, 
is really event-driven. It's uh, if a CPO has a pool that, um, that is unable to meet a margin call, they need to send notice to NFA. If they have um, a pool that's unable to satisfy redemption requests in accordance with their, uh, their offering documents, then they need to notify us. If they had to halt redemptions for some unplanned event, they need to, to let us know. And then the final thing is if they have a pool and a counterparty has uh, let them know that that pool is in default on a swap, that's the last thing to notify us on. So this kind of came about with, you know, volatile markets that happened um, during the pandemic and we were getting all sorts of you know, emergency situations where we would have to go out and kind of find the CPOs that were having margin issues and and were impacted by the these events. And uh, so we and our board thought it was a good idea to to put forward this rule to put it on the onus on the CPOs. If these events happen, you need to let us know. Um, so that's that's going to be effective June thirtieth. And then the other thing that when it is has been passed and will be in effect on September 30th of 2021 is an interpretive notice uh, regarding a member's use of third-party service providers. And this is kind of the rationale behind this was that members are outsourcing regulatory responsibilities to third parties. And um, when they do that, they need to understand that it's still the member's responsibility to meet the rules and regulations, right? So, so they can't outsource their, their liability. And so we felt to mitigate the risks associated with that, that members should have written policies and procedures surrounding the outsourcing. And it really gets into, you know, a risk assessment of whether or not a particular area is appropriate for uh, outsourcing, uh, doing some due diligence up front to look at, you know, the third parties, uh, information security programs, their um, their regulatory expertise, and of course, you know, just other logistical issues. And then once they decide, yes, they're going to go with a third party, then it's the ongoing monitoring. It's what record keeping you have to have. So the interpretive notice goes through all of that and requires you to have this written procedure if you're going to outsource regulatory functions to the third party. So not every time you have a third party, but if it's a regulatory function, you have to do that. So that's going to be, you know, that's definitely something that is going to be looked at in our upcoming exams. So the self-exam questionnaire that I'm so hot on um, has already been updated to include a section to help you develop this third party, these procedures related to outsourcing to third parties. You know, so you'll see it. But again, as you said, Patrick, we're going to have an educational approach when we when we start these exams. You know, it's not like I'm going to come in on on September 30th and be like, oh, my God, you've not done this. We're going to the business conduct committee. You know, um, right. we, we we want to see that you've made an attempt and that you're trying to to get there. But um, we'll help you with that. Yeah. One, thank you for all of that additional context. And and I would say whether or not for the compliance officers and general counsels and legal practitioners listening, 
to this show, well, whether or not you are currently a member of the NFA, I'm really interested in, especially on that third party service provider on that rule that's coming out. And I'm interested to, to evaluate the content of, you know, what firms would need to, again, kind of make sure that they're building for their own internal controls. I will tell you, you know, for any, you know, RIA or broker dealer that's out there, this is something that they should make sure they have in their own compliance manuals as well, in their own compliance programs on evaluate because again, the 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 use of service providers to perform basic blocking and tackling functions at a lot of these firms has only increased over time. And 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 the firm's reliance on them has only increased over time. And so I I agree with you. I think it's critically important for firms who again want to make sure that they're keeping up with their own third-party due diligence and that, that affects so many different areas, right? Cybersecurity, information security, proper data privacy. You know, there's other performance and, and other related concerns that you would want to make sure that, so that you were meeting either your fiduciary duty or your best interest level of duty with regard to certain activities. So all of that kind of gets wrapped into that package of, of outside service providers. So I, I think that's fantastic. Thank you for that, for that additional background. What about some of the trends that, that you all are seeing? And, and maybe I'll, I'll ask this in kind of a broad sense, uh, but, but feel free if there are specific issues that, that you'd like to you know, dig into a little bit. You know, with regard to um, the exams that, that you all have been doing, have there been specific you know trends in some of the deficiencies that you're finding on that front? And then um, uh, in the unfortunate circumstances where it does lead to an enforcement action, are, are there any trends on, on that side of the house as well? Yeah, there, there are. So the deficiencies that we're seeing on exams are, are as I said, avoidable. They're, you know, they're not things that are going to really get you into to trouble with our business conduct committee, but they're things that you have to end up addressing in a deficiency letter and things like that. And uh, you would like to avoid them. So things like making sure proper the proper people are registered um, as associated persons. Um, I think people forget that the supervisors of uh, your brokers need to be APs as well. So that's a common deficiency. There is going to be some things, you know, that we have to relook at in the new normal of uh, branch offices and who needs to be listed as a branch office. So uh, we are in the process of looking, working with the CFTC to see if we can can redefine that a bit. Um, you know, so that's one thing right now that it is a common deficiency, but I think we need clarity on and who needs to be listed as principals. It's it depends on certain titles and and ownership, and so you do need to be sure. And that's all in the in the self exam questionnaire. <laughs> Stop saying that though. I, I'm, I'm I, no, that's okay. I'm I, I'm picking up a trend though, and I like it. I like I like it's good. <laughs> With cybersecurity, um, the the most common deficiency we have and, and what we think is really important is making sure that you educate your employees. It's all employees. It's upon hire and annually thereafter and really, you know, sticking to that and making sure that you get your employees. It, it just takes one person to not think about it and click on a phishing email and 
and then you have problems, right? So, so um, that's what we see the most uh, common deficiency in that area. I talked about CPO internal controls before and not having them documented is, is an issue that we are seeing a lot. Account statements that pool participants send to, or I'm sorry, that CPOs send to their pool participants. Um, the one thing that, that people don't understand is that the regulation actually requires that you report on the pool in its entirety, not just the individual participants' interest in the pool. And so it's really important, you know, if you have non-regulated pools at an admin, they might have something different than they have for the regulated pools. So we see that. And unfortunately, it's something that is oftentimes a repetitive deficiency because we went last year and we, or, you know, last time and we reviewed pool A and we had that deficiency. So you worked with your admin and got that pool A fixed, but you didn't fix all your other pools. And now we've come back and we've done pool C and you have a deficiency. So, right, right. The um, recidivism, I, I'm sure, is is one of is always going to be a, a key area, right? Where if you've come in and done an examination and identified an issue and it, and it never gets corrected or it's not corrected in a comprehensive way, kind of like as, as how you're describing, that would seem like a uh, like an area that, that would be rife for uh, for you know possible deficiencies or or hopefully not but but maybe even enforcement. Yeah, so let's talk about enforcement. You know, enforcement actions, which are our business conduct committee actions, uh, without a doubt, the two things that will land you in front of the BCC is pool fraud, so taking your pool's money and not uh, not using it the way it was intended to be used, and uh, failure to cooperate with NFA. So, and, and, you know, that has to be extreme. We, we are pretty, pretty nice and pretty open. So you have to, failure to cooperate is definitely a, you've made a decision that you're not going to cooperate with us on material items. Um, those are, are the big ticket items that will end up in, in front of our business conduct committee. But as you're saying, you know, the repetitive deficiencies are going to, to get you there. And, and those are less material, right? It's just that every time we come, there's still an issue. So, uh, you know, you haven't maintained records that you're required to maintain. Uh, you've got late filings with us. So your PQR data or your pool financial statements weren't filed, AML training and audits. So, so those types of things. Uh, I already mentioned the fact that you know, you completely ignore a rule like cybersecurity, and that's that's a new new thing that's going to our BCC. So just general breakdown in supervision is is how we look at that. You know, these repetitive items, um, we're going to have issues. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And actually, uh, that's a, a perfect segue into the the one of the final areas that I was really hoping to get to talk to you about today, which is is on that supervision point. And the fact that, you know, many people, at, you know, in the NFA wouldn't, you know, be excluded here have had to adjust how they operate. And many people obviously, you know, doing things remotely, you know, how did the pandemic kind of impact the NFA proper and and maybe you know a couple of the key you know uh, a couple of the key initiatives you all would be looking at like examinations 
And how did the NFA adjust to that? Yeah, well, like everyone, you know, the the world shut down and uh, that included our, our building in, in Chicago and New York. So all of our staff have been working remotely this entire time. So we adjusted quickly. Thank God our technology people were able to to, you know, pivot quickly. What a huge relief they were um, to to get us new softwares and and all sorts of things to help facilitate the the remote working world. Obviously, that meant we also couldn't go on site to inspect our members. And uh, so we've been continuing to do all of our exams remotely this entire time. We got better at it as we went along, as did our members. Um, And, you know, it's a lot of good communication. It was our members understanding that, you know, we were still going to operate like, you know, we were doing field work. So we were still scheduling your firm for a particular week and needed you to have the right people available for a particular week. You know, otherwise these things would have dragged on for forever and mm-hmm. uh, we would never have moved on to a new firm. And that's not good for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so so those were kind of, um, you know, what we had to do. And we're still planning to continue remote inspections. Um, NFA is returning to the offices in July into um, on a hybrid basis. We'll be in, you know, a few days a week and still working remotely a few days a week. But uh, we don't know that our members are going to be in the office, right? So we're going to, we're right. just going to continue doing remote exams for um, for a little bit here. And uh, we actually are going to be meeting with our executive committee uh, this summer to talk about what exams will look like mm. in what everybody's calling the new normal, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, we've been successfully doing our jobs remotely and these inspections have been going well remotely. So do we have to go back to what things were like pre-pandemic? Probably not exactly. Um, So is there, you know, what's the right balance there? How much time do we need to be on site versus not and things like Mm -hmm. that? So these things, these are questions that some smart people at NFA are looking at and working with our executive committee, which is our board of part of our board of directors to kind of get our strategic plan for post pandemic. Yeah, that's one, you know, thank you for for all of that additional context. And I, I would add, I am very, very appreciative of the fact that the leadership at the NFA is is taking a look at that. I think certainly FINRA, for instance, also extended their remote supervision uh, kind of rules, both for the regulators and even at the firm level, you know, through the end of the year. And I I know that, you know, the industry as a whole, I think, is is certainly going to uh, kind of wrestle with this concept, probably for a little bit of an extended period of time, because one of the things that, you know, was certainly a, a lesson learned during the pandemic. And I mean, look, I'll be the first to say that um, it, there are some things that you don't get the same maybe quality or value out of a meeting over Zoom that you might get in person. And there are other things that that I do really enjoy about that I think would enhance a meeting that, that would be happening in person. But at the same time, 
we all got a lot more do you like your point about like we all got better at it right like we we all really did get better at it and and adjust to it and really start to make it a very very productive tool i liked some of the ideas we had natasha griner on from the sec uh from the sec division of examinations and she was talking about how you know, people were getting really, really creative <laughs> with the examination process happening over Zoom. They would they would take their cameras around and do a live stream to do a walkthrough of the office. They would they would you know have a camera just set up throughout the day, and people would come in the door, and it like it felt a lot like the SEC or Finra or the NFA was actually sitting in the advisor's office. And so, uh, certainly, to the extent that we can replicate that probably save a lot of money for a lot of different organizations and resources and time and hopefully still get some you know productive productive results out of it but it seemed like that that would make a lot of sense yeah i agree you know and and supervising remote uh remote employees you know i've had my own challenges but we look at our members and you know because we've said go ahead work remotely and just you have to have supervisory procedures in place and so what what we have been seeing of course is they have all these procedures and then nobody actually followed them so um you know there's there's nothing worse than uh having a written procedure and nothing easier for my examiners to <laughs> test is having a written procedure right. to see that you you didn't do something so when you said you were going to review it and make some sort of report mm, so yeah. the first question is can i see that report you don't have it so um <laughs> yeah it, so. that's great if, if there was ever a maxim that all compliance officers can could you know could could take to heart it's um say, say what you do and and do what you say mm -hmm. <laughs> right? exactly yeah well patty thank you so so much for taking the time to chat with us today i really appreciate all that information Th this has been fantastic and really great great insight into the organization and what it's going to be focused on um well, I wanted to get you out of here with maybe a, a little bit more fun question, which is that, uh, you know, spring is turning to summer, um, you know, knock on wood, uh, hopefully we, we continue to kind of open things up a little bit. Where is one place here? I'll, I'll ask I'll ask the question like this. Either where is a place that you are really looking forward to visiting that you haven't been able to visit or who? is someone you know that you haven't been able to go visit that that you're looking toward to visit uh here through the rest of 2021 well there's there's new babies who have joined the family so my siblings are our grandparents now and uh so there are some new babies that were born during those 13 months that i am very much uh now that i'm fully vaccinated <laughs> uh, happy to go and, and and squeeze their toes, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Make sure they know who Aunt Patty is. So that's uh, that's who I'm looking forward to, and, yeah. and without a doubt. And actually, getting back to work and seeing all of our our people live is is kind of exciting for me too. So <laughs> yeah, but I wholeheartedly agree with both of those things. Um, 
uh, I'm going to get to go see my brothers together for the first time here coming up in the very near future, which will be fantastic. And um, no, I, I really, really hope that you get to see those those little babies here uh, very, very soon. Thank you again so much for coming on the show today and look forward to having you back on the podcast at some point down the road. Thanks, Patrick. Today's final segment features another installment of What's On My Mind. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents a tip of the cap to former Grouch in Chief and 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney, and it will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a contemporary issue affecting the investment management industry. In today's What's On My Mind, we look at gamification. There's been a lot of talk about gamification lately. Earlier this year in February, FINRA's 2021 report on its examination and risk monitoring program highlighted scrutiny by the regulator looking at certain brokers that offer, quote, game-like or interactive investing experiences and how those brokers that use such tools should disclose the investing risks to clients and their process of approving customers for trading options. Some folks may also remember that back in March, gamification became a buzzword for politicians surrounding the GameStop run-up and related congressional hearing, as some argue that the gamification of certain business models adds to the, quote, tech-induced stock market volatility. And then just several days ago, on June 9th, with regard to gamification, new SEC Commissioner Gensler stated that while such behavioral prompts in brokerage apps generate more active trading, this same active trading is correlated with lower returns, typically for the average investor. Gensler further asked his staff to prepare a request for public input for consideration on these issues. SEC Commissioner Peirce said, in response, <laughs> that the SEC should, quote, gamify its communications with investors. Peirce's comments come on the heels of SEC Chair Gensler's stated position to regulate cryptocurrencies more strictly. Peirce is fearful that this would stifle innovation, which would also extend to stock trading platforms that, quote, gamify investing. And while some feel it's irresponsible to use these game-like features, such as competitions, rewards, leaderboards, etc., to, to encourage usage, Commissioner Peirce sees these qualities as being innovative in, in encouraging more people to invest in capital markets and stating that, quote, gamification is not necessarily a bad thing. Making financial platforms more user-friendly is not a bad thing. Adding platforms like this should look like the other platforms in people's lives. In helping it to spread financial literacy and awareness, Commissioner Peirce feels that the SEC could benefit from using some of these features. We need to gamify our communications with investors, she said. We need to meet them where they are. This topic is a tough one. While I do not disagree that gamification could be and probably should be used as an impetus to study the investment decisions made by small investors and certainly whether there are regulations in place to help safeguard them and, and how regulation could be improved. Instead, it also appears, unfortunately, that gamification now may be used as a political tool by many politicians out there to rush into adoption, more regulation, not necessarily better or smarter regulation. 
And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Patty Cushing, for taking an in-depth look at all the productive things happening at the National Futures Association. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 